The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal people, traditional custodians of Tubagale, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. I'm Jazz Money. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. This is the final episode of a five-part season, which showcases recent projects from the house, including talks from New York-based cook and author Alison Roman, investigative journalist Chris Masters and Nick McKenzie, along with our 50th birthday festival debate, titled The Opera House Would Not Be Built Today. This episode is a special one. We'll be hearing new work from four emerging writers commissioned as part of our collaboration with Western Sydney literacy movement Sweatshop, titled All About Women of Colour. Running alongside our annual All About Women Talks Festival, the program is designed specifically for emerging writers from First Nations or culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds who have had some record of publication but not yet published a full-length work. Four writers two winners and two highly commended, had the opportunity to work on a short piece of fiction inspired by the themes of the gaps of the Me Too movement, writing under the guidance of sweatshop mentors and with support from the All About Women team. Our finalists, Margreta Sowa, Helen Nguyen, Upma Verti and Tamara Hark, all got a chance to read their work to an audience at the All About Women Festival in March 2023. Margreta, Helen and Upma returned to the house to record their works, especially for this podcast, and we're going to listen to them now. Please be advised that the stories you are about to hear contain content which is often explicit in nature or may be considered inappropriate or offensive to some listeners. If you or someone you know needs support relating to the issues raised in this episode, contact 1-800-RESPECT a free helpline which supports people impacted by domestic, family or sexual violence. My name is Helen. I'm in my last year of my undergraduate law degree at the moment um, and also interning at the United Nations Office of High Commission of Human Rights. Um, So yes, I'm in the law sector, but I also spend a lot of time writing on the side too. Um, It's one of my biggest passions and yeah, very excited to be here and having done the mentorship. My writing experience probably started when I joined Sweatshop Literacy Movement around August last year. Um, so I've been working a lot um, with Winnie and Muhammad from Sweatshop and their mentoring has fully guided and shaped my writing to where it is today. And it's still an ongoing process. But since then, I've had um, started being published, which has been very exciting. I was first shortlisted for the SBS um, Emerging Writings Competition in 2022. Um, and following from that, I've been published by Pedestrian TV. Storycasters, SBS Voices, um, and I'll also be included in Sweatshop's upcoming anthology, Povo. So yeah, it's a few few publications, but still an emerging writer um, and navigating the, the writing space as a, a young voice. Mostly I enjoy writing about my experience growing up um, Asian-Australian, navigating cultural conflict, identity, family, um, and all the intersectional experiences there. I write on these topics because I felt that growing up, these were the conversations that I wished I could have heard. I feel like I would have benefited a lot being around the midst of this conversation and would have made my adolescence a lot easier. 
So a lot of the writing I do is for myself, my younger self, and also future generations of young Asian Australian women too who don't see themselves represented and are looking for that voice to to feel understood. So yeah, that, these are the main topics and um, this mentorship was really in line with the writing I love to do. So I really enjoyed it. I've been writing since I was 13. I started as you know, a classic teenage Wattpad subscriber writing fan fiction um, in year seven, year eight. And it just kept going. I've always loved stories, loved consuming stories, sharing stories. And I first realized that I was a writer when I took a break from writing. I write most days, um, even if it's journal, some creative thoughts, some quotes. But when I took a break from it, I realized like I felt so anxious all the time. I felt like some part of me was missing, which is really similar to when I hear about dancers and when they take a break from dancing, like their legs twitch and they feel funny in their bodies and not able to express themselves fully. And that's how I feel whenever I am withdrawn from writing. And since a young age, I've always known I wanted to be a writer, even before I had any publications. I just knew that that was what I couldn't get by without doing. It was my way of entering the world and my way of expressing myself. And yeah, just just having that absence made me realize that that's what I wanted to do. So what is it like balancing law with writing? It is pretty difficult. A lot of the times I also work in a law firm. So I work at a boutique family law firm in the city. So I'm always around words, like very dense words, lots and lots of court judgments and textbooks and yeah, lots of reading all the time. So sometimes I come home, like I just can't look at another page of words. But it is for me a balance I try to achieve every week because it's my way of balancing the practical parts of my brain and the creative side. Um, writing it is, though it is still a lot of language, um, picking the right words, it is my creative expression. So it is a good balance with the more practical, heavy, dense work that I do through uni and in my job. I was inspired to apply for the mentorship because I found the topic to be extremely interesting. The Me Too movement has been ongoing since 2017. And by this stage, post-pandemic, I and a lot of um, women and a lot of men as well have found that the feminist uh, movement and feminist scholarship has been a bit outdated, was falling into a bit of victim porn saturation. It also became quite inaccessible to a lot of women when it's saturated in such a strong binary between what's right and wrong and, you know, you're harassed or you're not, you're doing something right or you're not. And I really found that the conversation that the mentorship was trying to instigate was, it was invigorating, it was interesting, it was how, where do we go from here? How do we make Me Too more accessible to women that the movement had previously left behind? And what was my place in this as a young woman of colour in Australia? Um, what was my experience? And I had to really think about what I had to say and contribute to this movement and how I could make it accessible to so many other women I know in my life too that found the movement too restricting for them to be able to ever open their mouths and stand up and participate in. And it was a writing mentorship, which I like. I love writing. I, I Writing is my way of yeah coming out into the world of understanding how I feel, understanding my identity and my place. So I was intrigued and also I work quite closely with Winnie Dunn through Sweatshop and I spoke with her about it and she encouraged me to apply and that's when I applied and yeah, I'm very grateful to have received it.
The biggest lesson I could take from this mentorship experience is to write what scares the most out of you. And I was very privileged to get to work with two insanely incredible writers, editors and mentors, because they could tell when I was avoiding what I needed to say. They could sense it from me. They were saying, you're like, this writing is still beautiful, but you're not saying the full truth. You're not telling your truth, your story. And they really pushed me to dig deeper and look at the parts of myself that I was afraid to share and had never really articulated verbally on before. And using writing as that safe space to to storytell what I would have otherwise never have shared. So to write what scares you and also to write with responsibility as well. As an emerging writer, having been published now a few times, I feel like I carry a responsibility Every time I sit down and write and try and share something, it's the responsibility of how do I make this space bigger for women, women of colour, young people in the future to be able to, you know, spread out to walk and to take up more space and to speak louder. How do I make it more accessible and how do I make this space bigger? It is a responsibility being published, especially on a platform as big and as great as Sydney Opera House. Like it is, it is a responsibility and. To think about that and not just repeat and echo what had already previously been said or conversations that have already been started, but to think about how I can say something that's different, how I can expand the conversation and make the most of the opportunity I have. That that was a lesson that I didn't expect to have realised when I applied for the mentorship, but that I have learnt from finishing it. Everyone deserves a chance to share their truth and their truth is important even if it's received differently from different people and everyone has their own opinion or interpretation of a story. But for me, it's the the empowerment that I deserved the opportunity to share my truth was, was very healing for me. Healing for me is a process that I feel like I only ever can achieve um, and begin through my writing. I've never been um, a very articulate person in my personal life. I think a lot of that has come with the identity I internalised as an Asian woman and the stereotypes there around being an Asian woman and expected to be quiet, docile, submissive, agreeing, and also the way I was raised and the values of the environment I was raised in. It didn't really encourage conversation. So I've been quiet for most of my life about the things that are important to me or the things that hurt or the things that make me angry or sad or how I felt about a lot of things, I really learned to just neutralise and compress it all down. And that process of unravelling it slowly and finding what my actual truth was, not anyone else's truths around me or what I've been told should be the truth, but finding what my true experience was and, and sharing that has been a really healing experience. And yeah, as I said earlier, knowing that I deserve to share this story and like my voice matters and it should be out there in the form of writing. I think my biggest piece of advice to give to emerging writers is to read, to consume as much as you can, see what's already out there and sit down and ask yourself, how can I make this space bigger, this literature bigger, this conversation bigger, this movement bigger, the political state at the moment in um, in Australia, in whatever country or state the person is in, how do I make this space bigger? Because a lot of content is out there. Sometimes it's just about looking and searching and and then the role of an emerging writer is to say something different, say something new, contribute your own story and everyone has something new to contribute.
Forever Virgin. Kerasaf nutritive hair mask foams silkily from my tongue. Yuck, no time to spit. Mum barged in at any minute, and I want to finish my shower without her seeing my pubic hair, which is trimmed by full bush, like the fake lawn in front of our double-storey Footscray house. I am breathlessly dabbing a dove soap bar across my limbs with the speed of a careless rat test swab. No wonder I've never had COVID. L'Oreal purple shampoo bleeds from my eyes like vampire blood. Namo azidafat. Namo azidafat. Buddhist chants spout from my tongue nervously. What if Connor heard me now? He'd probably owl in my yo. I swear Mary's tin ton. One sniff of perfumed air and she'll know I'm a slut. Conditioner drips in eggplant-shaped globs down my waist, the colour of lemon cream. Hannah, dove soap plinks on my toe like the crack of a durian. This is it. I've been caught. But for what? Mare budges in, bolstering my plum red bullet vibrator to the sky like a bottle of sriracha sauce. What the hell is this? Mare screeches. A silicon love honey X bullet bruising my IKEA underwear drawer full of nude seamless briefs and tan full-coverage spanks. Mum must have found it while folding my laundry. Striking hot red bullet, blinking like a chili in a white person's bum me. Mare made a point of washing my Catholic schoolgirl dresses, probably to check if my hindum broke on any of the plaid skirts. He made you buy this. He forced you to use it. Are you a prostitution? A lesbian? Mare is screaming. She moves towards me and I flinch. Spine hitting the cool charcoal wall. Three weeks ago, balloon train pizza in Southbank. Connor and I sat at a two-seated table by the window, overlooking a twitching brown river. His pinkish face was riddled with acne, and a metal chain twisted around his beaky neck. Connor was unfortunately ugly, according to my best friend Bella. She insisted I should be with an Aaron Nguyen instead. He had a crush on me since ninth grade, and his biceps were beginning to bulge underneath his navy polo sleeves. I wasn't sure how much of Bella's insistence was due to me also being a Nguyen, or whether she thought Aaron was cute. But she was blonde as Barbie, and so maybe she found Connor's blue eyes and light blonde hair familiar and boring. Not me. Connor, any white boy really, was always going to be my first choice. Something warm and pulsating pressed between my legs. I blinked at Connor, confused. He told me to order my pizza. I couldn't give the waiter the slightest clue what was happening. What was happening? Suddenly, I felt a strong buzz reverberating through me like I was on a scooter. Shh, Connor hissed. With his spare hand, he fiddled with his phone, pulling up an app. I'd only seen vibrators in Sex in the City. I assumed I was supposed to enjoy this. Connor's thumb, stamped with a metal signet ring, slid the setting up high, higher, Highest. He must have thought the highest equates instant pleasure. My legs jittered uncomfortably. My clit hurt. If only a closeted Catholic schoolgirl taught me about sex. The waiter arrived, a stringy Indian dude with a silver hoop piercing. I ordered our lunch easily, forcing my calf steel. From the edge of my double lids, I kept a gaze on Connor's unchanging face. The waiter left and Connor raised his bushy blonde brows at me, as if to say... Not bad. I exhaled and removed the bullet. At least he sounded impressed. I pushed it towards him, but he pushed it back to me, patting my knee. Keep it. It's for you. For being a good girl. Mare stands by the shower door, 
blocking my exit. I cannot get out to grab a towel. She's a wild mix of Vietnamese and English now, sounding like scrabbling craps. How you do this? How dare? Fifteen and already knowing sex stuff? Who make you? I call the police. Outside I cramped bathroom, for scray flutters with Sunday haste. I hear aunties dragging trolleys of spring onions and radishes across the sweaty nature strip. Their flip-flops spanking a fallen Yaomong leaf into the fishy floor. Footscray is the fake name for this Vietfield suburb. I sometimes called it Vin Cray. Mary and Bao do not socialise with this community. When we first moved here, Mary and I watched Lan, the Asian grocer's daughter, sat on a cubic crate at the grocer, shiny black hair tumbling over her maroon school uniform jumper as her little fingers organised bundles of bop joy. A smaller, pimply-faced freshie stood next to her, periodically kissing Lan on her greasy forehead, making her blush. He smelt of fish. A silence flooded between Mare and I. This cannot be you. Bear arrives now, sighing. What is going on? Bear's bubble tea pearl eyes lock on the bulge of my breasts before flicking awkwardly away. My cheeks flush. I am too old to be naked in front of my father. Bear removed of the locks in our house when I was 13. He huffed and puffed, complaining about his erythic spine under buzzing screwdrivers. Mare did not trust outside tradies in our home, not with her 18-carat diamond rings. She didn't trust me either, adolescent and in her mind, a forever virgin. I imagine Connor standing here, stussy jeans dragging over his vans, acne popping like Boomba wear rings. You're 17, he would exclaim with a tone of injustice. What is this? Are they abusing you? I step out of the shower, pushing Mare aside. It's time I get a towel. Did you hear what she did? Mare screams at Bear. Avoiding my body, Bear picks up a worn-down novel on the bathroom table. I stand, a dripping rat. I watch as he reads the first few sentences of my favourite novel. I didn't do anything, I exclaimed. Nothing? How tell me about nothing? I found this. Again, Mare holds the irregular honey X to the sky. Bear doesn't make eye contact with it. He continues reading Lolita until his face erupts. His tanned hands lacerate Lolita's spine. He throws her down the stairs, Humbert's precious testimony on the sexual maturity of nymphets, fluttering like flecks of dead skin. I whimper as I look away. This is why she's doing naughty stuff. All she reads is this, this, porno. Bear yells before stomping down the stairs. He doesn't imagine me. He doesn't realise, if you can't say the words as a new one, you need to read them. So, are you enjoying the vibrator? I can hear the smirk in Connor's voice over the phone. Shh. My swollen eyes blink through the black closet, checking my perpetually open bedroom door. Incense follows. Mary's in the altar, praying to our ancestors for our salvation. Sorry, I keep forgetting. Well, you really do have an odd family. Remind me why I'm seeing an Asian bird again. Fire your loins? I whispered back with a chuckle. It feels terrible, the fact that I have been crying for hours and am now forced laughing. Either Connor's ignoring my borderline hysteria, or just can't pick up on it. I don't know which is worse. Right, speaking of loins, that bush babe, it's getting in the way and I find it hard to get hard to it. Can you shave it off? I bite my lip. I want to tell Connor goodbye, that our premature romance is nothing but decaying weeds. Perhaps somewhere, sometime, we will see each other again but it will never work so long as I am a new one. Babe? Connor's voice is gentle in the dark, nudging. 
I sigh, itching at my pubes. Mia is going to kill me. And now we get to hear from Margareta Sowa, who is a writer based in Western Sydney and who is also a creative strategist and freelance copywriter whose upbringing and spirituality is integral to her writing. So, a little bit about myself. I was born in Ghana, in West Africa, and I came to Australia when I was two and a half. I've always loved writing. It's always been a passion of mine, an outlet. Sometimes I don't have the words to say, but I have the words to write. So I've always written, basically. I've always loved poetry, um, love short stories, love novels, and I've spent most of my life in books, really. I love... Audrey Lord. I love anything written by Walt Whitlam. Um, so they're mostly poets and um, activists too. Um, I love Maya Angelou. She's a big, big favourite of mine. There's so many, but those are the ones that, that come to mind immediately. So I have freelance written um, for fashion publications before in the past, both in Australia and internationally. I've copywritten. I've got a freelancing business on the side that I content market and copyright and also write think pieces, any sort of writing, but I really love being able to write emotive, expressive think pieces that talk about the sociology of fashion and the world around us. So that's probably where my most of my writing comes from. Yeah. And then I also write poetry on the side. You know, the first time I thought I was going to be a writer, I, well, firstly, I thought I was going to be a ballerina slash bird watcher. That was my <laughs> adolescent dreams. I uh, always loved dancing. You know, dancing is the body, the body's poetry, right? But I think distinctly, I can remember in primary school, I would say maybe eight, eight-ish that I thought, I really like what I've written. And I think I can continue to do this in my adult life after I gave up the dream about being a ballerina and, <laughs> and a bird watcher. <laughs> so it started early, yeah. <laughs> what inspired me to apply for this mentorship was first and foremost a subject matter. I thought it was really poignant. I thought it was timely. I thought it needed a particular lens and voice that perhaps it hadn't had talking about the Me Too movement and women of colour being sort of iced out or, you know, not within that conversation per se in the, in the, in the mass media. So the subject matter was definitely number one. Also an opportunity to get my work out there and have it being heard by thousands of people was a great incentive. But mostly being able to share a story, a particular story that I felt I had the ability and the wherewithal and the courage and strength to tell. The biggest learning that I took from the experience was that there are many ways to tell your own story and there are many ways to tell others' stories. I learned a lot through the mentors themselves or with the mentors themselves, I should say. The editing process was intense just purely because it was under a short period of time that we had to deliver. But I would say, yes, really honing and understanding that I can tell this story, this is true, but there's other ways to tell it that are outside of perhaps what I know in my own reality. 
So branching, expanding my mind with the assistance of the mentors and the editing process allowed me to tell a greater and bigger story than even I thought uh, when I initially put in the pitch. So that was really a beautiful thing. I believe it will have an impact on my writing in the future. It's not the style that I gravitate towards. As I said earlier, I'm more of a poet. Having said that, there are different mediums, and that's the beauty of writing to tell a story, whether it's through poetry, whether it's through long prose, short vignettes. So there's a lot of breath in there, and I love that. I think that's one of the best parts about it. Absolutely, it challenged me. This whole process was a, there was a lot of other things going on, right? Work deadlines, personal achievements, that, and this as well. This is definitely a part of it. Um, so I was challenged, but in the best way. And I think it really gave me the confidence and the freedom to be able to play a bigger game in my life and also to be a voice for others as well in, in a way that I knew was possible and I have done before, but in, in a much more deeper and profound way, I, I believe. The one piece of advice I would give emerging writers is don't give up. You're going to get no's. There are going to be people that don't understand your initial vision, but that's not to say that it's not valid and that's not to say that there's not a place for your voice in your story, even if you are telling someone else's story. So I would definitely say don't give up. Keep persevering. And also, I'm going to add one more in there. Be flexible and agile because, yeah, what I've learned also in this experience is that I had one particular way that I wanted to go and found that there were other wonderful pathways to also get me to the destination. So I would say don't give up and also be flexible as well. Spare lingerie. The ladies of Three Loves Us an old terrace house parlour in the back streets of Sydney CBD, laugh loudly in the waiting rooms. It's sparse, two couches, a single chair, an old coffee table and a TV monitor propped on the wall that shows the clients come in and out. This is how most of us escorts survive. Security cameras and laughter and always on our toes. We are short, thick, thin, black, brown, white, adventurous, timid or to ensure the choices for men are varied. We don't offer the same services, meaning we make different money. It is only in these waiting rooms that we are the same, for the most part. I wanted him to leave so badly. I mean, how can you pay for six plus hours and expect me to do all the work? Tati, a pixie-like redhead, bemoans. She usually works the rooms nearest to me. She's light-skinned but she's something, probably Indian. I guess by the sharp shape of her nose, but can't be sure. We try not to know too much about each other, just enough to keep us safe. He was so quick. It was the easiest money I've ever made, Amanda gloats. She's a hot ticket at Three Loves Us. Tati and I tease Amanda by mimicking penises pushed on the side of our cheeks. We giggle, like a gaggle of schoolgirls. My client, John, booked and paid in advance. Mandy, the elderly Greek madame, tells me in a croaky voice he's already waiting. Climbing creaky stairs, I open a paint-chipped door to a dimly lit room. Angular and familiar, it too was lacking in furniture. A chair on the left, the shower to the right, 
and a four-poster bed enclosed with mirrors. When men pay, they demand to see everything, get all their money's worth. John is already sitting on the bed, removing his shiny Omega watch. He looks at me and his eyes scroll to my ruby slipper heels. A nod to the Wizard of Oz. To my rich cream slip. He licks his lips. You know, I've never been with a black girl before, he says. Removing his leather dress shoes. His voice is deep and it echoes throughout the room. I hand him a towel, ushering him to enter the cubicle. Don't worry, I won't bite. It's like riding a bike, I say, batting my thick glued-on lashes, as if I haven't used the same reply a thousand other times. Beyonce's music starts playing through the speakers. I hum if I were a boy whilst getting the bed ready. We must provide toys and protection ourselves. In my monogram LV tote are condoms, cream, cheap red handcuffs, wet wipes, and spare undies in the event they get stolen, which has happened twice already. With a rattle of pipes, John turns off the shower. He quickly dries his thickly muscular frame before jumping onto the bed. He's getting a sense his 60 minutes is running out quickly. That's the trick. Waste time in the shower, talking and disarming them as much as possible. His blue eyes lock in with mine. Come here, he beckons, with a hand the shape and colour of a polar bear's paws. My hands are smooth and dark as obsidian on John's pale and freckly body. Once, a local psychic told me I was a physical manifestation of the root chakra stone, that I can stay grounded in stressful situations. Had to be true. Otherwise, how could I still be an escort? Rubbing his padded shoulders, I am reminded that the massage is my favourite part. It is when I am most in control. Massages are not penetrative, and it's a real chance to know each person more holistically, sizing up size and skin that will eventually be inside me. John moves forward to kiss me. I catch the light scent of tobacco lingering on his wet, blonde strands. I move back, creating space between us. Space is not what John has paid for. His pupils move from my mouth to my breasts until his gaze pour into mine, a black hole wanting to destroy everything. What good would a root chakra be then? John tries again. This time he uses his large and wise hands, covering my whole face. A fistful of push, directing my lips towards his dried, thin pink ones. Sucking in my cheeks, I pull back, thrusting his grip forward and away from his face. Bile bubbled in my gut. Don't you want to kiss me? He asked sharply. I don't kiss in bookings. Calm. Still. Grounded. What if I paid extra? His palms squished the sides of my skull. This is how it starts. Men try bargaining all the time. Extra money, pushing boundaries, morality testing. Men, white ones in particular, always want more. I don't kiss, sorry. I am not sorry, but feel conditioned to be. I remember Tati had a regular, a classic tradie, come in after a pub crawl night. We could hear him throw her around like a rag doll in their room upstairs. He only left after she cried, Sorry, okay, I'll do it. Amanda and I were just across the hall. We heard it. When the regular left, he left a stink of chewies and a bruise on Tati's left cheek. You should see my ass. 
she joked meekingly. A small trickle of blood blending into a red wig. Sorry women made all the difference to savage men. My stomach flips. I start to panic. My heart pumps in overdrive. My palms sweat and there is a lump in my throat. John's fuzzy and thickly curled beard hovers over my face. No control. There was never any control. Only white men are in control. With applied pressure, I am unable to move my face. His thin, dry lips come closer, breath minty with chewed gum. John is sober, which is even scarier. I cannot stop what is coming. John's sandy tongue brutally tugs at my pursed lips, forcing me open. His saliva drips in my throat. That wasn't so bad, was it? He gloats, finally releasing me from his hold. I'm satisfied. Get the shower ready. Leaving John's cold embrace, I stumble to the shower. He's right behind me, large and limber legs striding to stand in front of the shower. John's broad chin stretches to the heavens. Shower with me, he coos. Reaching past me, John turns on the hot water faucet and steps into the shower. All traces of the cream have fully soaked into his alabaster frame, making his skin smooth like a shiny pearl. We are facing each other. Mist rises heavy and seeps into my nostrils. John is a head taller than me, so I have to stand on my toes to look him in the eye. With water gushing around in between us, the weight of what happened sinks in. Grounded. Always on our toes. Polar bear palms at his lower pelvis. Soap foam becomes a lubricant as he touches himself. With arms by my side, I stay still. I keep eye contact. John's heavy hands move faster and faster. Sperm hits my stomach. Water washes the thick liquid off me quickly. My shoulders drop. I breathe in the mist, rooted. Without a word, John gets out of the shower and combs his damp blonde hair with his stocky fingers. He puts on a grey button-up shirt with brown pants and a dress jacket. Pats at his beard. Fully dressed, John leaves, but not before pecking my nose with his prickly upper lip. I cringe as he chuckles. The stairs creak as John goes back down to the CBD rush. From my room, I can see Tati cleaning her own room. She must have finished her booking at the same time. She looks at me, her strawberry wig dishevelled and matted, a towel around her fairy-like body, and the glittering makeup she had on an hour back completely wiped off her face, revealing a light brown face with spots of acne. At least there was no bruise. We give each other a small but heavy smile. We get it. Lastly, we have Utma Vrti, a writer, performer and creator who's passionate about preserving culture through her business Chaiwali, which aims to preserve the sacred ancient tradition of Ayurvedic teas and spices. My name is Utma Vrti and I'm a first-generation Indian-Australian migrant. I was born in India in Punjab and I migrated to Australia when I was one. And growing up in Melbourne with my family, I grew up with really strong Punjabi Indian values and culture, cuisines, all sorts of things. And for me, growing up with that was really special. It taught me so much about where I came from, my roots, my heritage. And now I run a chai business called Chaiwali, and everything that I do 
is about the preservation of culture in some way. I used to be a commercial lawyer, but I think I had a little bit more to offer the world as well. In regards to my writing experience, I've been writing ever since I was a child. I remember having this aqua blue marine style notebook when I was about six, and I wrote my first dear diary in that. And it was really pivotal movement for me with one of my English teachers in primary school, really pushing me to write. And I grew up listening to a lot of Sufi music and Sufi writing, and my grandfather was a Sufi poet. And wrote a lot of stories as well. So for me, writing has always been a way to express myself and make sense of the world in some way. So writing for me is a way to explore my mind and explore the way the world is and question myself. In terms of Sufi poets or poets in general that have influenced me, for me there there have been significant poets like Buleh Shah, Hafez, Rumi, of course. And there are Sufi singers that I really look up to, and their writing has always moved me. And they are Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan and Abida Parveen. Their writings are so devotional in a way, and they could be about anything. And I like that they speak to different people in different ways. It could be about love, it could be about God, it could be about friendship. So for me, when I write, I like anyone to be able to. Take something from it in a unique way, like what looking at a painting, people will see different things, or drinking a good cup of chai, people will be drinking and feeling different flavor notes when they drink it. So for me, the way I've listened to songs and writing in a Sufi aspect has been through love and romanticism, and so things are described in a really romantic way that speaks to me, and that's how I like to write as well in some ways. What inspired me to apply for the mentorship? When I saw it, I was immediately drawn towards the fact that it was a women of color writing competition, and I hadn't seen that before. And for me, it was something that included me. It said me in it, and it invited me. Growing up in a very conservative Indian family, writing was never an option as a career for us. For my brother and I, in terms of creative pursuits, in that regard. So when I graduated high school, we only had two options: them being doctor or lawyer or accountant, for that matter. So I remember asking my dad in year eleven, "Hey, can I please study philosophy? I am really drawn towards philosophical writings." And my dad immediately shut me down and said, "No, you can't. It's either law or doctor." And so for me, it. Seeing this mentorship symbolized to me that I can create something with my writing. My writing doesn't just have to be something that I keep to myself. It can be something that I can share with others in a really unique way as well. Family—they've never really been a part of that side of my brain in terms of how I write. So it was something that they hadn't really been exposed to. I write a lot. Of content material from a marketing point of view, and it's all about storytelling, and I do that a lot. But they hadn't really seen that side of me, so it was really special that they were able to come from Melbourne actually see me at the Opera House perform this piece. There have been so many learnings for me during this experience, and for me, writing is a creative way to explore myself. I have many creative ways to explore myself, but as a trauma survivor. Writing is a way 
that I can create something out of nothing. All I need is pen and paper. And so when I began this writing journey, I sat down with pen and paper, no computer there, and words just came out of me. And it was really beautiful to see them come out. And it was like I was creating a piece of artwork, but word by word. And something that was really important to me was that each word was to have power and value. So weaving through this abstract poem for me was to create something with a really significant conclusion. It was something really powerful because it allowed me to create something out of nothing and be supported in that way as well. And yeah, I think that's all I can say about that. There were so many learnings, but mostly it was listening to myself and listening to my inner critic and knowing that I do have those answers inside me. It just needs the space and time to come out. So some advice I'd love to give to emerging writers is to not compare yourself to others in any way and not to look or compare or draw comparisons to what's trending and how you're writing. For me, I grew up writing a lot. I write nearly every day. And so I didn't learn about haikus or things like that. Writing for me was definitely something cultural that I grew up with. And so the advice I'd like to give is definitely to draw inspiration from the world, from nature, from things that you're drawn to. And when it feels difficult, maybe right now isn't that time for that piece of writing. I feel like things come out seamlessly in the right time, in the right place. And I guess the most powerful idea is the time for when it has, that idea has actually come. I really want to explain a little bit about my poem. My poem is inspired by a really famous Bollywood song called Choli Ke Piche Kya Hai, which means what's behind the blouse. And it's a, it's a really famous song. I dance to it at my Lady Sankeet, which is a folk dancing event before you get married. And the song itself is of a woman dancing with a blouse. And there are many connotations of the song and it can be about the sexualization of Bollywood and what is behind a lady's blouse. But so how I've done the writing piece is in two different pieces. One piece talks about what's behind the blouse in a sense of there's so much more behind the blouse. There's so much more behind the blouse. And I deconstruct it in a way that I go through classism. I go through what it means to be a woman of color beside white people and what that means and what the Me Too movement has also done in a way of really putting women of color in the shadows of white feminism. So for me, that's deconstructing what's behind the blouse. There's so much more. The second part of my poem is about really deconstructing what's behind the blouse in a literal sense and going through the motions of what Bollywood has done and what that means and how important community is. That was Utma Verti, sharing how the love and romanticism of Sufi poetry and literature has influenced her writing. And now Utma will introduce and read her poem. Behind and Underneath What is behind your blouse? What is underneath your veil? Kya hai? What is there? 
When you close your eyes and dream, tell me what is there. When you awake in the morning, open your eyes and breathe in your first thought. Tell me what is there. When you stand naked, truly naked, before your own self, tell me what is there. And when you place the veil of rose-tinted glasses on your eyes and you take a step into the world, the people, the noise, the crowd, the mass, can you tell me what is there? As you walk your path, is your pavement lined with rows of perfectly manicured bushes that look much the same? Have your bushes grown so lush and tall that they cast a shadow over mine. Hidden from the sun, it's just out of my reach. In the shadows, I begin to rely on what's underneath. But tell me, have your roots sprawled over mine, taking away the vital nutrients out of mine? I tend to my roots, I water my soil. But deep, deep below the surface, an unspoken game of snakes and ladders is played. And each time I roll the dice, I seem to just miss the ladder. Landing on the snake's mouth, I slide down to its tail. My roots try to grow in the depths of your shadows. They struggle, entangled, growing in all different angles. Weakened, depleted, and stunted, with seasonal leaves of different shades, only to be sprayed away like unwanted weeds. To stay down, to keep low, to not rise above the shadows. For too long, our roots, leaves and branches have stood timidly in the shadows, politely yearning to be tasteful, to be palatable. For too long have these nutrients been sustaining minerals for another, voiceless against the wisdom taken from us. For too long have we tried to prune back our leaves into perfectly manicured bushes, holding back from our truth. For too long have our bushes tried to look like yours, lighter Brighter, whiter. For too long have our wounded petals and scarred leaves remained hidden. We share soil with the most ancient wisdom. There are roots tying me down to the earth's core and the moon's oceans, traveling deep through ancestors, warriors, gods and goddesses. There is my heart which pulses blood through my body, a cell created in my grandmother's womb, a pulse beating with the rhythm of Mother Earth. There is wisdom beyond our universe. The stars, the moons, the plants conform to make me, to make you, to make us. But we were kissed by the sun god, Surya, in our mother's womb. Our seeds were sown by the Kasanis, the farmers of Punjab. Watered by Madja, the heartland of where the five rivers of Punjab meet. Our destiny, our kismet, written deep, deep in the rich soil, Weaved by ancient cotton thread, nature's wisdom, the tide, cow dung, and all things in between. Lost in the dreamfulness, the coabs of myths and legends of Bulesha. So when you close your eyes and dream, tell me what is there. Joli ke piche kya hai? What is behind your blouse? Junri ke niche kya hai? What is underneath your veil? Piche te niche, behind and underneath. An item song seductively portraying a woman. What is it that she wears which leaves them listening on, with greed in their eyes and excitement in their thoughts? 
In a lenga choli, the item girl dances on. Her clothes, layered with patterns, each weave tells a story of family. In the sounds of her anklets are songs that preserve her tales. In the cracks of her heels is the strength of the desert's heat. There is so much that she wears beyond her blouse and her veil. But what is it that you wear? Is it a smile that overlays what is beneath? Or a melancholic aura to mask your pain? Or a when is your next holiday discussion to hide from the deeper questions which leave a gaping feeling in your gut? What is it that you wear so defiantly that leaves us wondering, inquiring, what lies beneath it all? We all have wounds of all different shapes and sizes, but some remain hidden, refusing to surface, some waiting for space in our journey to uncover themselves, some living in the horizontal lines of our forehead, some like Dettol on an exposed cut, too painful to extract. Some are in the spaces where our conscious and subconscious meet, a convergence of raw thought and the present. We all have wounds to share. But what if you have been kissed and you do not know how to tell? Community has told us to only share the best of ourselves, to reveal only the brightest leaves in our bush. But how will we know what it's like to climb up a ladder if we've never been bitten by a snake? In the game of snakes and ladders, we must know how to fall in order to rise. Community told us to trim away the faded and weakened leaves, to let them settle on the soil brushed away underneath the surface. But in those discarded leaves exist gentle grooves and curves that tell stories, stories that need to be heard in order to feel, in order to heal. In those leaves are lines and patterns tracing through our experiences, stories that need to be grieved, to be shared, to be changed. In those discarded leaves are wounds that have survived through the shadows, with an ending that has been left untold, waiting for us to unfold. But in this story, I, I create a new beginning. Lenga utake chalu. I will raise my skirt and walk. Gungat grake chalu. I will drop my veil and walk. Lenga utake chalu. I will raise my skirt and walk. Gungat grake chalu. I will drop my veil and walk. Something that's really interesting that I want to share is that Snakes and Ladders is actually an ancient game that was developed in India. And Snakes and Ladders was a way to actually show life's virtues and vices and ups and downs through a really simple game. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.